Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So this week, I am talking about herbalism's own little dragon darling, Artemisia Draculinus, or Tarragon. And I am keeping the fiery draconian energy, or maybe not so fiery, now that I've written it, uh, going by talking about what else but dragons, y'all. And I will be giving you all a rundown on one of my greatest inspirations, truly one of my main men, Vulcan. It's Dragon Week, y'all. Get into it. Ugh. So good. And you guys have no idea how many fucking Trogdor jokes have been already like ruminating around with the different things we've called this. Like our our fucking like script thing is burninating the peasants and our recording title is like he was a dragon man. So uh, <laughs> if you are one of our listeners that's um, on the younger end of things and you don't know about Trogdor the Burninator, do yourself a favor, give it a Google, and you can enjoy one of the treasures of the old internet. <laughs> oh my god, really one of the greatest treasures of the old internet. Uh, and we're just going to roll right into motherfucking dragons on whoop, that whoop. note. Uh, <laughs> so I think to start off here, I am super excited to have the honor of presenting our magical creature series, Dragon Edition. Shark Week, eat your fucking heart out. It's Dragon Week, okay? Shark Week could never. Shark Week really could never. But so as anyone who follows the Instagram knows, like my main tarot deck that I use is a dragon-themed tarot deck, and the art looks like cool 70s metal album covers. So shout out to Callie for getting me that as a gift. Um, It's truly the most Nick tarot deck. Like, it was clearly created with you in mind. It really was. And so add into that the fact that I am a double fire sign, Aries Sun, Sag Moon Gang. Thank you very much, y'all. Also, I was a total fantasy nerd during my formative years. I think if you add all of that together, you might have some idea of my enthusiasm for dragons. So, uh, and not to pull Shannon out of the nerd closet, but I do think it's fair to say, based on a certain wizard and dragon figurine collection that I'm sure parts of still exist, that Shannon is almost as enthusiastic about this topic as I am. And, you know, Shannon, do you, do you still have some of the wizards and dragons floating around? Oh my god, of course I do. I literally just looked up to my right on the top of one of my bookshelves is my um my snow globe that has dragons around the base and like a little wizard inside with a castle that spins around and like glitter shoots up. I have so many like wizard and dragon figurines. I have um this really badass like I don't even know what to describe it as. It's like got this cool dragon wrapped around it and it's like a tube full of water and like purple oil stuff that when you turn it on it like spins and makes it have like a purple tornado in it uh i have a lot of dragon and wizard collectibles so it's a lifelong thing it's it's one of those things where when someone finds out that you like something suddenly you get those for gifts for like ever and ever amen 
And when I was a kid, I went through this phase where when we were out at ponchos in Fort Worth, Paula, uh, yes. there was a like dollar store next to it that we would mm-hmm. go in afterwards. And I started collecting these little like dollar store wizard figurines. And so as that evolved and my collection grew, like my grandparents ended up buying me like I have a wizard and dragon fountain and all of these other like kind of more elaborate things that eventually were amassed. So, um, yeah, I'm quite jazzed about this. We're so, <laughs> we are so stoked about Dragon Week, you guys. Like literally, I have been a buzz all week listening to podcasts about dragons doing tarot readings on my dragon deck. I'm like, I'm going to get a motherfucking dragon tattoo. Um, Dragons, man. They're so fucking cool. Okay. Just like kid, like kid moment. We just have to like take a moment to just uh, appreciate how fucking cool they are. We really do. And so I think, you know, but there's a lot to say. There's a lot to cover here. Um, so for this one, we really have to go all the way back to the beginning. And uh, thusly, uh, Trogdor was a man. No, he was a dragon. Okay, no, really, though. Um, <laughs> and actually, the interesting thing that I think lots of people might not know is that the earliest dragons were water dragons, aka sea serpents. So like the fire-breathing, winged, gold-hoarding type dragons don't show up on the scene until much more recently. I'm sorry, Uh, I think you meant to call them Nessie's ancestors? Very much so. Okay, so (laughs) like I was saying, way back in the beginning of human culture, there was this little place called Mesopotamia, and Phoenician people lived there. Uh, in a place called Babylon. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> She's kind of a big deal. Right. But so luckily for us, they kind of invented writing and they were really jazzed about that. So they wrote like everything down in conveniently preservable clay tablets that are still perfectly legible literally thousands of years later. And again, we do lament that the druids didn't think to at least write some of their shit down, not even once. We will never get over it. Being hipsters, it like seems cool in the moment, druids. Right. In retrospect, not a good idea. It's not cool. But okay, so we once again find ourselves at the dawn of human civilization because dragons are the original cryptid. And so poor Tiamat wasn't always the original dragon, though because she was the goddess of the sea and through a sacred marriage with the god Abzu gave birth to the whole cosmos and the original pantheon of Mesopotamian gods before getting caught up in a whole Zeus Cronus style cosmic power handover at the point of a spear. But instead of taking the kid's side in the little power grab the way that Gaia did, Against Cronus, Tiamat takes Abzu's side in this like Mesopotamian style clash of the Titans. So she transforms into the great sea dragon, the first dragon, and embodies the chaos that came before civilization and the gods. So she's in a really moody headspace, obviously. 
She's fighting for her life against her own deity children and trying to save the power for her and her husband. Which, there's a lot going on. Who who wouldn't maybe feel a little dragonish after all of, of that? gratitude. Really, right? though. She brought them into this fucking world. Exactly. I, and it's like, uh, where's the love? Where's where's the love? But uh, but it is a losing battle. She knows it. I mean, they're really outnumbered power wise and everything. And so the storm god Marduk, who is almost certainly like a Zeus equivalent, the god of storms, right? Thunder, storms, you know, same death. Mm, but sounds familiar. Does sound very familiar. But before he could kill her as the sea dragon, she unleashes all of the monsters in the world as a punishment for her misbehaving pantheon of children, including the original dragons. And so something to put a pin in here is that the dragons that come from this death, you know, or death creation, uh, some of them are flying dragons and some of them are sea serpents. So apart from herself we do have some of the original dragons but then that's like it like they're not really mentioned again they're just okay flying dragons bye and then it's sea dragons all the time always right <laughs> yeah just kind of a yada 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 sea dragons right yada 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 uh, but sea dragons uh and so actually besides dragons mostly being represented as sea serpents for several centuries after this tale was originally told. The other common thread from these like Gen 1 dragons is their sort of inextricable ties to the primordial chaos, like the sea, the, the scary infinite ocean. And so this carries over into Greek and Roman mythology, where we see like the multi-headed hydra coming out of the sea way too many sea serpents to count there's sea serpents in the odyssey uh and there's even like a few land-based but still very much just like giant snakes sort of gobbling up shepherds and living in haunted forests right and that's really all we get for a very long time so we have sea serpents all the way up until like the eighth century in europe but i'm gonna have y'all put a pin in that um, and we're going to talk about some other ancient dragons, because one of the really cool things about dragons is that they show up in so many different cultures that never had contact with each other. So obviously we have Chinese dragons and Central American dragons, and they both have their like own unique flavor. Um and there's, again, really no way they could have been influenced by the dragons of the Near East, which influenced Greece, which influenced Rome, which influenced the rest of Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, so Chinese-style dragons, though, uh, are, of course, weirdly also associated with water straight from the get-go. And they're seen as, like, the bringers of the rain. They're the native spirits in rivers and... You know, when they're out in the ocean fighting each other and playing around, they cause monsoons and typhoons. Um, and so they're like very, very tied to water. But unlike the Near Eastern version, the sea serpent or like just a straight up giant snake, uh, the Chinese style dragons could always fly. Uh, it was not something that 
sort of developed over time that they could fly. Uh, but And so some of the gods and heroes in traditional Chinese mythology use dragons as mounts, which like, now I'm going to nerd out for a second, but like, that's the dream. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything more fucking epic than riding a dragon. Okay. So I think though, I think like dragon boys are the boy equivalent of horse girls. And that's like just coming to me now. Yeah. And dragon girls are future bisexual witches. Also very true. Uh, (laughs) And so there we go. We figured something out for you guys. Um, but yeah, riding dragons, that's the dream. If dragons were real, I would want to ride one immediately. Uh, and so here's a fun fact, though. Speaking of Chinese mythology and dragons, remember how we talked about mummy powder being used as a popular potion ingredient in Europe? Yeah, powdered uh, dead people. Powdered dead people, right? Uh, so dinosaur bones which are actually very common in the Chinese countryside, um, were a traditional ingredient in Chinese medicine until relatively recently under the name dragon bones. Wow. Uh, So, you know, uh, you could go get some dragon bone tea and it would be dinosaur bone dust and water. Um, That's crazy. Also, I just can't imagine that your stomach would feel good. No. After ingesting a bunch of powdered bones. Yeah, like old ass bones. This isn't like collagen. This is like. Yeah, this is not this is (laughs) not bone broth. This Uh, is dragon dust. (laughs) uh, So anywho, but so then we have the Central American version of the dragon, which is the Quetzalcoatl or the Kulkulkin. the feathered serpent style dragon so still kind of snaky uh that's like a very common theme with the early dragons uh but this one could also fly like the chinese dragon and uh part of the symbolism with the quetzalcoatl is like the duality of it right so the feathered serpent could be heavenly it could fly among the clouds and enter the world of spirits but it could also be earthly, like creeping around on the ground, like a more regular serpent might, you know, kind of down among the forests and the animals and the normal people. So like the balancing act was, I think, an important cultural touchstone for the people. And I really think like the evidence that they were really into like the symbolism and mythology of the Quetzalcoatl is just all of the Quetzalcoatl art has made it to today like they carved the shit on their walls they made statues of it they've made costumes out of it like the quetzalcoatl was a big fucking deal uh and i think it kind of serves as a reminder to yourself to like keep your spiritual life and your human life in balance which is always a good reminder uh so of course all of this cross-culturalism is very interesting And honestly, one of the most interesting things, again, about dragon lore is that it shows up independently across almost every major human civilization. But being as I already told you guys that this segment is coming from a fantasy nerd, what I really wanted to dig in on here was how in Europe we went from having sea serpents and giant snakes and occasionally like giant crocodiles or lizards to like a bat winged flying village destroyer 
Um, and one very good answer that I came across for flying fire breathing dragons showing up around the time of the 8th century, which is also when the Roman in- Empire was completely on the decline. Like they're on the way out, Vikings are on the way up as like the predominant power. Um, but the answer that someone very eloquently had put on a Reddit board of all fucking places was that dragons take on the forms of the fears of the local culture. And because, I mean, it's like these serpents are like this primordial fear, you know, like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's like we're scared of snakes because at some point in our evolutionary history, we used to get eaten by snakes in our sleep. Um, And that makes very logical evolutionary sense that we would be scared of shit that looks like snakes. Uh, But the earliest European flying fire-breathing dragon is sort of like the worm from Beowulf. Uh, Now, Beowulf might be considered the original piece of English-language literature, but it is heavily inspired and influenced by the myths and legends from Scandinavia and Germany. So with that in mind, you have to think the Vikings did hold dominion over basically the whole sea at this time. So the open sea was kind of a less scary and unknown thing to them. So like a sea serpent, whatever. Like they they knew what whales were. Like they didn't they weren't scared of a fucking sea serpent. They they were like, "Oh, that's a whale," right? Uh Yeah, I mean, that tracks. <laughs> you know, so it's like they did have their fair share of like sea serpent lore because obviously if you spend that much time out at sea, these stories are bound to come up, but they also had this new like worm type dragon. Uh, and I do hate the way that it's spelled with like W-Y-R-M. Uh, but there you have it. Um, so there's also like the most intimidating conquering force in the world, which is the Vikings at the time. So they also come from like one of the wildest and most untamed places in Europe at the time. So like, these these are people who deal with shit like bears, like and whales, and like actual like deep uninhabited forests. So like just a big snake, or like just a big sea serpent. Like you really need something scarier than that to be a bad guy in a Norse saga. Uh, and so it makes sense that their dragons could fly and like burn down whole villages. Because honestly, fire was like a huge deal, not just to the Norse, but like everyone who endeavored to live uh, a more urban lifestyle at the time. Like they made their houses from like thatched roofs and sticks and like mud and shit and like filled it with flammable objects and had fires in their houses. Like shit was burning down all the fucking time. And then the main thing you would do when you would invade another village would be to burn it down. Um, So, you know, it's like fire is scary to them. uh, But fire not only would just straight up kill you, but it could also leave you alive but starving to death because another frequent thing that would happen was that you, if you were going to invade somewhere else, you would burn their granary. Sort of like a mandatory 
siege style famine you know it's like oh y'all don't have anything to eat well we're just gonna wait for y'all to become weak and then we'll take over uh, yeah, humans have been ruthless forever humans have been ruthless forever very cool love that for us uh but 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 so basically kind of getting back to it like they're not afraid of combat they're not afraid of the open sea they're afraid of fire right um so and you know it's like if you light a fire there is no modern firefighting technique at the time the whole town's gonna burn down like you might have a bucket of sand at a fancy establishment maybe maybe but so this is also a time when people really started to lean in on fortifications even for civilian purposes so like these are like the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. This is the age of walled cities and towns and drawbridges and moats and towers. And like the Romans taught the rest of Europe about borders and defensive architecture. So people spent a little less time fearing an overland invasion where guys just walk into your village and burn it down and more time inside the safety of walls. So what becomes scary to someone who feels safe inside walls? Well, something that can fly over the wall. And so this was like a scary enough combo that this new, more recognizable dragon becomes the predominant form of dragon lore. And like Beowulf, we find lots of flying, village-destroying dragons, who were conveniently slayed by some sort of chosen one hero, thus cementing his status as either like a king or just a divine hero or whatever the myth is calling for. Like slaying a dragon becomes shorthand for being the hero. Um, and so there's countless myths that kind of follow that original like Beowulf slaying the dragon formula. And then of course... We have to come to one of the only defenses of Christianity doing something cool that you will ever hear on this show. I promise you guys, like, do not cancel me. But so during this time, we're talking like 900, 1,000, 1,100. England decides to take up a cool new patron saint that they discovered during the Crusades. And that is St. George who is famous for slaying a dragon that was terrorizing a Libyan village and demanding outrageous human sacrifices for the pleasure of continuing to be terrorized by him. And so because St. George kills the dragon, this wins the admiration of the village and everyone immediately converts to Christianity in his honor, no questions asked, and everyone was just cool with that the end. Because obviously, you know, it's like he killed the dragon. Now we're going to convert to his religion forever. So the real effect here, though, is that England loved the symbolism of this and how it supposedly honored Christ and was deemed the most admirable and chivalric of the saintly deeds by all the different saints up until that point. Not to mention justified the coming centuries of colonization and economic manipulation, all in the name of spreading the good word of Jesus Christ. So we have St. George as England's patron saint, and like there's a byproduct of this, which is lots of 
dragon flags and shields and family crests and shit with dragons on it because now we have this new patron saint in england and everyone wants to like tie their themselves and their families and their dynasties in with dragon imagery and so because of this we have dragons sort of creeping into like the collective consciousness and the literary culture with shakespeare making several dragon references and comparing like angry or unfavorable characters as having dragon-like qualities uh this is also like the era of king arthur and the chivalry hero which of course involves lots more of the beowulf and the worm style dragon slaying stories which really cements what we think of as dragons in the modern era into like the english language fiction culture and that really continues up through the centuries until we get to the 20th century and like all of this arthurian legend and all of this like just great rich history of dragon slaying being all over the fiction map uh this inspires authors like J.R.R. tolkien to populate their fantasy worlds with bat-winged fire-breathing dragons of their own which was sort of a revival in and of itself you know arthurian legends and knights and all that shit had really gone out of fashion for a while uh, and so he brought that kind of style of fantasy back. Uh, and also, by doing so, sort of inspired the following generation of writers to make dragons, like, ubiquitous in fantasy novels. Like, you know, because then you have, like, the dragons of of Pern. I, I mean, you've got Aragon. You've got Harry Potter has dragons in it. like. Dragons are fucking everywhere in fantasy novels now. Game of Thrones, hello. Like, but that really kind of brings us to today. And I would assume all of you fellow nerds know the rest, you know, burninating the peasants, burninating the countryside, etc. Like, that's what you're going to get when you see a dragon in modern culture. Uh, but the thing I wanted to end on was... What is y'all's favorite dragon? It can be mythological or fictional. Uh, I don't really care. I personally think a great one is the dragon from Vladimir Nabokov. Like the story is called The Dragon uh, because it's like kind of a scathing critique of consumer culture uh, from the 20s, which, you know, a bit ahead of its time. Uh, but as far as like the actual dragon goes, I think it's got to be. Falcor from the Neverending Story, which I know is going to get me a lot of hate mail, but bring it. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, man, I'm thinking my favorites are probably the dragons in like the magicians universe. Oh yeah, the like the ancient ones in particular, like the one in the show that um that they have to give the baby teeth to that Quentin has to give like his milk teeth to. Yeah. That dragon is just like such a fucking delight. Oh yeah. When they're like interdimensional beings who like really don't give a shit about the universe because the universe is a byproduct of some other shit they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just something about those dragons always just tickles me because yeah, I feel like 
to me, it makes sense that a dragon would have to be an interdimensional being. Duh. Duh. <laughs> Duh. But yeah, I'd love to hear what other people have to say. Like, what dragons are you guys into? Because there's a lot of good options. There's there's a lot of good options out there. <laughs> oh man. Well, on that note, we're gonna talk about our little herb dragon today. So Artemisia Dracunculus. I think I mispronounced it in the top, but whatever. Dracunculus is kind of a clunky word. Um, it's it's, ve- con- it's very <laughs> Very clunky. Very clunky. Dracunculus. It sounds like something that you develop after (laughs) you have unprotected sex. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so commonly known as tarragon. This is like one of my favorite herbs to have with scrambled eggs. Just like throwing that out up top. But it really Uh, is like shout Shout out to the mushroom and tarragon omelet at the steeping room for always holding it down. Yum. Oh my God. That was some goat cheese and I am there every day of the week. It's got goat cheese in it. Oh my God. Of course. It's just, they left it off because it's too clunky of a name to be like the mushroom tarragon and goat cheese omelet. Although. Oh my God. But that sounds so good with like a little piece of toast with fig jam on the side. Anyway, uh, we're recording during dinner time again. (laughs) Sorry guys. So the Latin name Dracunculus actually does mean like little dragon and it's derived from this like medieval belief that the shape of a plant reflected its uses and this the doctrine of signatures is what it's called and there are some plants that really adhere to that well like if you think about the fact that like walnuts are good for your brain health right walnuts look like brains it doesn't work with everything because you know nettles have a great affinity for the blood uh and nettles don't look like blood but it does have more energy. What anyway. if we, what if when you broke open a nettle though, it had like bloody juice inside? That would be epic. I drink nettle tea like every morning. I would definitely be a vampire at this point, but I'd be down. Um, but anyway, so because of the doctrine of belief, they called it, you know, dracunculus because its roots appear super serpentine, right? And medieval herbalists actually used tarragon as a treatment for snake bite, um, which I do not recommend. Uh, but the Artemisia family is also where you'll find wormwood, which is that herb that gives absinthe. It's like traditional green color and that licorice flavor. And tarragon does have kind of a licorice, like a light licorice taste. It's kind of like minty, licorice very fresh. Um, and it's just, it's one of my favorite things to cook with. So tarragon is widespread across Eurasia and North America, and it's cultivated basically worldwide at this point. It is a perennial plant, so if you get it nice and happy, it'll come back year after year. And it does have woody stems, and its leaves are, of course, green. They're long, thin, and pointy. Um, And tarragon can actually get four to five feet tall when it's, like, super happy. But most people with it in containers will likely have it, like, tap out around, like, a foot or two. I mean, I've seen some that get up to, like, three feet, but, I mean, I just don't expect a tarragon tree. Um, (laughs) French tarragon is the version that most of us are familiar with, but there is also like Mexican tarragon, which is pretty similar to the French. It's kind of a little richer. And then Russian tarragon that's more bitter. The Russian tarragon is often used in like beverages um, because it, it does have slightly a more like harsh, bitter edge to it. But this plant tarragon spreads via rhizomes, which is good news because the French tarragon plants very rarely produce flowers uh, and any seeds they produce are often sterile. So for French tarragon, you're actually going to have to get a start or snag a root division from a friend if you want to grow your own. 
And when you do get your start, you're going to want to plant it in either spring or fall. So it has some time to really like establish its roots before, you know, that super intense weather of either the winter or the hot summer hits. Um, And if you live somewhere that gets super cold, remember, you're still going to want to mulch around the base of the plant in the fall. You know, just like I always have to like plug the cold weather stuff for you guys. Um, But when you do get this plant in the ground and it's all happy, you're going to want to remember it needs about like two feet around it, right? So if you're in a bed, keep that in mind. Each plant's going to need about two feet around because they do get big. You know, even if it's only getting up to like three feet, that's still a, a big fucking plant. So, you know, make sure you give it some breathing room. And it's not just so the plants can like grow out and develop, right? It's also for airflow. And that's something that's super important because tarragon is prone to all of the like powdery mildew and the rusts, the things that are pretty common in a lot of herbs. So you do want to make sure it has plenty of air circulation. Um, And if you're going into a container, you're not necessarily going to have to worry about, you know, it being too close to other plants because you can just move them. But I'd look for something like a 10 or a 12 inch container for this one. Of course, if your plant's smaller, like start it in something that's more size appropriate, but I'd be prepared to pot it up the next season. So every three or four years, you're going to want to divide your plant to keep it from getting out of hand, right? So this is a good time to like do your root division, pass it along to someone you like. This is going to help it keep like nice and healthy. And, you know, plants that are perennial, even though they will come back year after year after year, some things do a little bit better when you cut them down and like get them back to a small size, right? Like not everything's an oak tree. You don't want your tarragon to necessarily develop into a fucking tree. So just be aware that's something you're going to have to keep an eye on. Uh, Not surprisingly, you're going to want to plant it in well-draining soil in full sun. And this is a plant that enjoys rich soil. So, you know, feel free to add in some extra compost when you're planting. You can also put it in like a richer soil to begin with if you're doing it in a container. Like I really like the Fox Farm stuff. There's lots of goodies in that. It always makes my plants super happy. Um, remember not all herbs like super rich soil though. So if you have a combined planter, keep an eye on what's in there. Uh, you know, you definitely don't want to plant something like sage or lavender in the same container necessarily as tarragon. You can get away with it, but they really are going to thrive with different soil types. So let's talk about herbalism uses of this guy. Um, I do want to like sort of disclaim up top that tarragon isn't as widely used in modern herbal practices, but it does still have some like really great benefits that you can enjoy. And like, obviously, Nick and I have talked about this a lot. Like, I'm a green witch, but we are both like on that kitchen witch spectrum, right? So I like to keep the herbalism properties in mind of like the plants and things that I use to season my food. Because it's a great way to like work in some extra magic and also do like good things for your body while you're cooking, right? So tarragon is a bitter warming herb that can stimulate your digestive system. So say you're coming off of like, maybe you got really sick and you had to do a round of antibiotics. Well, if your digestive system's feeling all out of whack, maybe a nice like chicken uh, chicken soup with like some tarragon that would help like stimulate your digestive system, maybe help soothe any stomach upset you're dealing with. You know, that's that's sort of how I think about things like tarragon. Um, I would also like to point out that it's a mild sedative and also a mild amenagogue. So if you have like a big day coming up, like maybe a big test or a presentation at work or something, maybe do like a nice tarragon like 
chicken or fish or even like a tarragon omelet for dinner that night to help you get like an extra restful sleep before your big day. And because it's in a mile of you can also like eat a little bit extra if your period's late. But I do have to say, like, if you're pregnant or trying to become pregnant, I really strongly recommend against consuming more than like normal food seasoning amounts, just because again, amenagogues can cause miscarriage. So you want to be careful. I'm not a doctor. Again, still not a doctor. Hey, we're still not doctors, (laughs) y'all. We're still not doctors. I'm trying. Um, (laughs) I know one of these days we're going to be like, and surprise. (laughs) Now we're doctors. Um, So you can also make a poultice out of tarragon, though, and you can use it to relieve like symptoms of rheumatism, gout, arthritis, and even toothache. So, you know, I think that adding this to a poultice, um, I think it would be good added to something like a cabbage wrap in particular. So if you're someone that deals with a lot of like swelling in your joints, you can actually use cabbage leaves to do a wrap and it helps pull some of the swelling But you could also include like a poultice of some tarragon under it that's a little bit soothing as well. You know, doing some like combos. We talked about formulary, thinking about how things can like support the work of other plants, both magically and herbally. So just a a suggestion there. But this is a magic podcast. So tarragon is a feminine plant associated with the planet Mars and the fire element, the sign Aries. Uh, and the deities artemis which feels like a big duh considering like the name is artemisia is the uh the family name so artemis uh aphrodite diana lilith and venus and so it makes sense that you see a lot of these like very warm strong things considering it's like a warming herb right so you're seeing like fire aries i would say that like Aphrodite like that's very hot you know uh she's a a warm lady she she is she's a very warm lady she is a warm lady I like her um tarragon is awesome for protection work and it's also good in like calming magic so overall I am really glad we're talking about tarragon today because I feel like this is a perfect herb ally for kitchen witchery in the fall and in particular holiday seasons right So you can add it to your food to help do a little bit of magic to make your guests feel comfortable, make them feel welcome. You know, I'm thinking adding tarragon to something like a stuffing recipe could be really good working in a little bit of your kitchen magic. It's also really useful in magic for love, peace, compassion, and nurturing. Again, great things for the holiday season. I know a lot of us have like family come to visit or we have to go visit family and I know it can be a tense time so tarragon would be something fantastic to add to like a sweetening jar which we've talked about like doing a little honey jar if you have some family coming into town you want to make sure everyone's on their best behavior tarragon is a great additive here but given its strong root system and this like dracunculus the dragon imagery you can also like call on the dragon persona of tarragon and magic to banish things right So you can burn it as an incense when you're doing cord cuttings or any spell where you like write down something you want to banish and burn it. You know, it's really a great ally in magic where you're utilizing fire. Um, And it's also really good in that same sort of vein for work to help you be brave and confident. You know, some of that like dragon Aries energy for sure. So with that in mind, you could use the essential oil and like 
a body oil or a magical bath, or if you've got some of that like lava rock jewelry that so many of us have, you know, a few drops of this essential oil could be really helpful in like boosting your confidence, making you feel good. You know, maybe you're going out on a first date and you want to feel like hot and powerful. Yeah. Tarragon essential oil. Tarragon is there. Right. Um, Yeah. And so that's about all I have for this one this week. It's kind of shorter, um, but this really is a great cooking herb. And and this is something that I've done more and more in my practice, I think, especially over the last year with us doing this podcast is like the herbs that you cook with every day, right? Like looking at the magic and medicinal properties of them, because if you're going to be using them in your kitchen, like go ahead and make a little bit of magic out of the mundane, right? Like if you're making an omelet and you have some tarragon and you're like, man, I really want to like feel nice and bold when I go into that meeting to ask for a raise tomorrow, you know, go ahead and like use the tarragon's magical properties, like call on those allies, really like make the most of your time in the kitchen, especially since so many of us are like super busy these days. It's not always feasible to like sit down and dim the lights and like burn all the incense and do a full ritual with like, you know, capes and everything. Like it'd be great if we could all do ritual magic 24 seven, but we can't. So I think this is just an example of how I like to think about herbs in my kitchen witchery. So this week I used uh, Farmer's Almanac, Spruce Eats website, Mountain Rose Herbs website, which they also sell really great bulk herbs and like salves and tinctures and things. So if you're looking for a good resource, I really recommend Mountain Rose Herbs. They have an awesome website. Um, and then I also use natural med- naturalmedicinalherbs.net, earthandskyconnection.com, and plentifulearth.com. Love it. Little dragon, little dragon plants. Little, little dragon baby. Little dragon babies. Okay, (laughs) so I'm back, you guys, because I got to do two things this week. I know you're jealous. Um, So we're going to talk about Vulcan. And this segment comes with a very serious trigger warning. Um, This segment contains liberal use of the word grotto. So if that is something that you are not okay with, uh, please fast forward about 25 to 30 minutes because (laughs) I feel like we should start the hashtag, like hashtag I'd rather be in a grotto. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In in this case, it doesn't sound so bad, but I mean, you'll, you'll find out. So, yes. (laughs) So when we were planning this fantastic dragon themed episode, it only seemed right to include a fire god as the deity. And so while looking even further and having to decide between Hephaestus, the Greek fire god, and Vulcan, the Roman fire god, it was readily apparent that we had to do Vulcan this week because unlike Hephaestus, Vulcan symbolizes both the creative and destructive forces of fire, as opposed to Hephaestus's sunshine and rainbows, one lane only take of fire being mankind's most powerful tool and helper. And that's it. We don't talk about the bad stuff fire does. It doesn't do anything bad, but it's like fire does do bad things. And Vulcan covers both. And to me, that's like big dragon energy, uh, like very core of dragon energy, really. And I was going to say, I also feel like that's such Aries energy, too. Like just speaking of because to me, that dragon Aries connection, probably because of you is so there that I think that's another just like great point you know it's like we've got to like recognize all sides 
of fire. Yeah, yeah, because fire is not just what you're using to blacksmith and cook your food and create things and warm your house. And it's it's also what burns down the village. Uh, you know, it's also... Burninating the, the countryside. I mean, you know, it's like these are people who knew about Mount Vesuvius and, you know, it's like they were scared of fire. Uh, and, and it's like it, it just it does. It makes sense to sort of be mindful of the whole the whole picture. But also it's like, it's like being mindful and also just like being respectful of the power of it. Mm hmm. And it's like being incredibly powerful, but also being very chaotic and demanding sacrifice. So, but it's not all about that. It's not all about like looking at the negative slants. So again, he is also the god in charge of the creative aspects of fire and all of the symbolism that that entails, including like vitality and uh there's a there's a few virgin births attributed to a spark from Vulcan coming out of the fire and getting some virgin pregnant with a future king you know it's like so vulcan very much has his place in a lot of very positive and good aspects of roman society but they do acknowledge the fact that fire destroys things and so i think that's why we kind of landed here with dragon energy uh so from the top though vulcan is the child, along with the rest of the OG Roman pantheon, of Jupiter and Juno. And really, it could not be more conspicuous right off the rip. So, as the son of the king and queen of the gods, Vulcan should have been a handsome baby. Beautiful, even. All the other ones were, right? But he came out red-faced and screaming and, you know with the contorted mouth and so oh uh juno in a breathtaking stroke of maternal instinct hurls him right off the top of mount olympus and into the sea and so a fun fact here is that in the in the myth as it is written it is noted that it took vulcan a full day and night to reach the bottom of mount olympus and land in the sea so i of course being the ridiculous person i am decided to figure out some of the math there. And based on an estimated baby weight of eight pounds, which I think is reasonable, Shannon, do we think eight pounds is a reasonable weight to guess that a baby is? Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds ballpark. Ballpark, right? We end up with the height of Mount Olympus at 653 miles. Okay, all right. So so Mount Olympus has to be 653 miles tall, for a baby to be falling for a full day and a full night. Uh, so now you guys know. Uh, but this is where the story gets really interesting. And so after falling for a whole 24 hours, uh, and the whole dragon started out as sea serpent's connection really comes into play here too. Because when he lands in the sea, he gets found by the sea nymph, Thetis, who takes him to her undersea grotto and raises him as her own, which the myth literally says he grows up playing with dolphins and using pearls as toys. And it sounds like very cool and very fun and slightly like he was raised to be a merman, uh, which is a weird way for the god of fire to grow up. Um, 
And so even though he grew up under the sea, he does eventually come across fire. And it is a huge hit for the teen fire god. Uh, so the story here is that the young man Vulcan, uh, the teen Vulcan, if you will, finds the remains of a fisherman's fire with some burning coals left in it on the beach. And so, of course, he's like, this is the coolest fucking thing ever, and he has to bring it home. So he puts the best ember he can dig up inside of a clamshell, because remember that culturally he is a mermaid, and takes it back home to play with fire. And I do think it's worth mentioning here that at this point in the story, my Aries ass is like, yes, play with fire, burn the shit, make a mess. But back to the story. Um, <laughs> Nick's like, yes, young person, burn it all down. Burn it all down. So Teen Vulcan is in his underwater grotto. He's got his coal encased in a clamshell because apparently this myth the same rules apply uh, about fire being underwater as those in SpongeBob. But he's in his underwater grotto. He's got a roaring fire growing in his undersea grotto. Uh, but Vulcan being a somewhat ordinary teen for being the offspring of a god raised by a mermaid, he's like transfixed by the fire. And so he just stares at it moodily for the whole first day. Uh, but on the second day, he decides to start playing around with it. And so he starts putting things into the fire. And he learns that certain rocks would, like, sweat out metals when heated by the fire. And so just like that, he invented smithing and metallurgy. But he doesn't stop there, because who would... Uh, so he's like, yeah, liquid metal is neat, but I could probably, like, you know, make stuff out of it while it's still hot, and it'll be even cooler than these blobs of gold, silver, copper, and iron that I've been making. So he very sweetly, I would add, decides that the first thing he's going to make is some pearl inlaid silverware for his mermom, uh, which as you would imagine, goes over just swimmingly. And um, he's inspired, right? He's figuring out this whole fire metallurgy thing, and he's making swords. He's making shields. He's making jewelry. He might have invented jewelry, but he makes a silver chariot for himself that can be drawn by giant seahorses. And I'm gonna side note here again, because it actually was super surprising to learn that the God of Fire's backstory was so damn mermaidy, And lest we forget that Vulcan is a teen at this point, he makes sexy lady maids out of gold for himself too to do his bidding and cater to his every whim, which is exactly the kind of pervy thing you would expect from a teen that's just discovered they have a divine power over fire and uh, metalsmithing. Um, but okay, so here's where things get really interesting for the teen god of fire. So we've mentioned that he's gotten very into jewelry, and as such, his foster mom is, of course, the recipient of a lot of his creations, which I mean, obviously, who doesn't love getting fancy jewels all the time, right? But it comes to pass 
that Thetis is going to Mount Olympus for a dinner party. Now that is a coveted invitation, even for a high-ranking sea nymph such as herself, so of course she has to say yes. And so we really hope she took the elevator because 653 miles seems like a lot of walking for a dinner party, especially as it's all uphill, even with a sweet sea chariot to take you to the base, you know, but uh, I'm rabbit trailing. So she's there. And Juno is like, that is a beautiful necklace. Where did you get it? And you cannot just brush off the queen of the gods at her own dinner party. That would be the height of rudeness. So she gets very flustered and tries to like skirt around the subject. But the truth finally comes out because, I mean, it has to. You've been asked a direct question by the queen of the gods and you're at her dinner party. And at some point, you just have to answer the question. Uh, She's not. And she's very determined. Uh, So Juno is pissed because she's realized that the baby she yeeted off Mount Olympus has invented metallurgy and can make beautiful jewelry, and so she demands that he return to Mount Olympus to make her jewelry and gifts. In this scenario, I'm just imagining Juno as Emily Gilmore. Uh, Juno is absolutely being played by Emily Gilmore in this (laughs) version of the Vulcan story. Um, Because she's like, you need to come back here, you need to make jewelry for me, you need to make me fancy shit, Uh, and take your place among the gods, which will be to be my personal stylist and make me jewelry. Uh, And so Vulcan, of course, politely declines. She is still the queen of the gods after all. Um, But really, like, who wants to go back to the people who yeeted you off of Mount Olympus? Like, Yeah, not I. (laughs) Like, you free-throwed a baby off a mountain. uh, And you want him to come back now because he makes pretty shiny things. Uh, so he decides, though, to give Juno a gift as a show of good faith, or so it seemed at first, because he sent her a beautiful silver and gold chair, and perhaps also invented thrones. So you're welcome. (laughs) Just throwing that one in there. Just throwing that one in there. And so, of course, she's like, yes, I am a queen. Let me sit in my queen chair right away. And boom, she triggers the trap. Because yes, the chair was a trap fit for a god queen. So apparently, all of the constant pestering to come to Mount Olympus had finally caused Vulcan to snap. And he devised a built-in trap for the throne that was so powerful, Jupiter himself had to beg Vulcan to release her. And so Vulcan's got the upper hand here. And not only does he gain his independence in this way, he also gets to make his own demands, the foremost of which is a goddess wife to match his newfound status as a fully-fledged god. And only the fairest goddess would do in return for releasing the queen of the gods. So in this way, Vulcan was wed to Venus, the goddess of beauty and love. And uh, they are together forever because gods mate for life. Uh, And so from there, you know, things settle down. Vulcan builds a forge under the volcano in Mount Etna in Sicily. And the local legend there is that every time Venus is unfaithful to Vulcan, he hammers away so angrily at his anvil 
that it causes the mountain to spew lava and sparks, which is, you know, a uh, very, very nice way of explaining a volcano. Uh, also, That's such an Aries response, too. Right. It's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to go to the garage and work on my projects. And also light some shit on fire. While and I'm also light it. some shit on fire because fire is my hobby. <laughs> Nick, is this you? Are you Vulcan? Bitch, I might be. Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, it's not all marital bliss or not bliss as the uh, situation is appropriate. Uh, Vulcan is the god of fire. He's got shit to do. And so he does feature heavily in the myth of Pandora and her fucking box, which TLDR, mankind steals fire. Very naughty mankind. So we're going to send dumb, beautiful Pandora to unleash misery and mayhem on mankind. And since fire was technically his thing, even though he didn't get it until later, he's responsible for giving Pandora a body made of clay. And also because he's sort of generally the god of crafting, you know, it's like he can make the most beautiful version of Pandora which is sort of what gives her her power to, to go into the human world and unleash these things. Uh, but also because he made sexy lady robots in his undersea grotto, he had some experience making beautiful ladies. Uh, but really, I did feel Wait, like... Wait, hold on. Is he Krieger in, then, in that case? <laughs> <laughs> just like making ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just making ladies. Uh, But so really, though, I did feel like the origin story was more important to tell here, especially since it ties more with like dragons coming from the sea. And so for the modern witches out there interested in working with Vulcan, very good news. So first and foremost is that Vulcan does have his own holiday. And it's actually very close to Shannon's birthday, so you can celebrate your own Vulcanalia on August 23rd. Aww. If you would like. And uh, you can make offerings so your shit doesn't burn down. Literally, I love that. literally <laughs> or metaphorically, uh, if, if, if that's your vibe. Um, a traditional thing to do for a Vulcanalia, besides sacrificing live animals by throwing them into a fire, which is a horrific thing to do. And uh, maybe that's our mini QWP for the week is uh, don't don't throw live animals into fires. Uh, yeah, I mean, I co-sign that. OK, Just cool. Don't. Hey, don't. Um, so but a, a thing you could do that they did way back then was hang your clothes out in the sun that day before you wear them. So they absorb some of those like fiery solar energies uh, and also I mean, on a nice sunny day in August, I'm sure it would smell just lovely if you live in a place with uh, fresh air. Or, you know, just get that sun energy in, regardless. And circling back around to the fact that Vulcan represents both the creative and destructive energies of fire, it is no surprise that in Rome, Vulcan was also the patron god of cooks and bakers. So tying it all in, since we did a culinary herb today... All you kitchen witches out there better represent and get into it. Okay. And so I was thinking uh, alter things for Vulcan. So I think Madeline's would actually be a very nice offering for a Vulcan themed offer altar because yes. 
It honors his undersea upbringing and love of seashells and pearls, and also honors his status as the patron god of bakers and cooks. So, And you could serve it with a tarragon jam. Oh my god, we really have come full circle. But in that same vein, I have several scallop shells that I use as incense burners, and I feel like that has appropriate Vulcan energy as well. Uh, and of course, a huge element of any Vulcan-inspired crafting should be that Vulcan and fire in general always comes from the direction of south. Uh, and this is almost like a universal rule. So at the Vulcanal, which was the main temple to Vulcan, where the Romans celebrated the Vulcanalia, it was to the south of the city. And that represented, so every Roman temple had a protective fire at the south entrance, and they were oriented towards the cardinal directions. You could not have a, a skew temple, right? So you would have a protective fire at the entrance to the temple, which would be facing south always. And so since they saw the city of Rome as kind of like a temple in and of itself, the temple to Vulcan represented that protective fire that would be in any other temple. It's like the big, the, the meta version. And so the, the, southern, the southern direction uh, is actually like very important to working with Vulcan and working with like fire energies and like calling on fire energies. Uh, so I personally have a red and gold pashmina hanging on the south wall with a painting of just flames that I made. Uh, on the south wall of my bedroom, uh, and that's like my fire altar. Uh, and like fire is a huge part of my personal personal devotionals as the person that I am. So like if you want to think about it in like a different context, like south is the direction of Mecca for the fire worshippers out there. And that is something important to keep in mind if you're setting up an altar with Vulcan energies. Um if you are doing something, if you do work in a kitchen and you want to put something up for Vulcan, like a sigil or another protective spell for your kitchen that you work at, do it on the south side. Do it on the south side of the kitchen. It is important, so don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to get your fucking compass out. Uh, they do have a compass app on smartphones now. It's not the most accurate. You couldn't use it for stargazing because you need more accurate degrees than that. But for basic cardinal directions, it's fine. And so I also feel like Vulcan would be an important deity for anyone who crafts in general because, I mean, he like invented jewelry making. He's really big into cooking. Like it's all about cre. I mean, even though initially it was just fire, like the things created by fire, it kind of spread to just any skilled crafting. And now to finish with some like speculation and interpretation from yours truly. So while I've been doing my segments both on dragons and Vulcan this week, it really has seemed strange how both have such oceanic origins. And that really had me thinking like there has to be something there. And it's like, here I am, a double fire sign, and I also have this, like, affinity for and, like, calling to, like, the chaos and, like, that infinite feeling of the ocean. And I feel like the ocean really could be seen as, like, the ultimate master of fire. And 
I think, you know, it's like there's enough water in the ocean to put out every fire on Earth multiple times over. And it's almost like in the balance of things in this world that we live in, water allows fire to exist and not the other way around. You know, it's like fire spews new land up from the bottom of the sea and the ocean dissolves it away. And there's definitely a primordial struggle there. But the world is 70% ocean and like 30% land. So in that way, it's really not surprising at all that the masters of fire in our mythology come from the sea. Like what better place to learn how to control the power of flames? And that's all I had for you guys. Uh, I love that. That was so fun. Wow. That's like so much more mermaidy than I would have expected. It was a lot more mermaidy than any of us could have foreseen, uh, except <laughs> maybe a Vulcan expert. Right. Um, that was great, though. Well, we're almost at the bitter end, guys. And because Nick did so much goddamn work this week, I'm doing our taroscope. And I actually have a message today for our Taurus babes. So for you, I have drawn the Iha of Air. And in my deck, the Ihas or the Daughters correspond to the page cards. And Air, of course, is the swords. And so this card in my deck is represented by Catnip, which is also one of my very favorite herbs to work with. So this card, the Iha of Air, is an invitation for you to let everything be your teacher. This card is all about like the beginner's mindset, whether you're starting a new journey or you just need to like reapproach something with fresh eyes. This is a time for you to like set your feelings aside and allow yourself to observe and ask questions. This is kind of like a first thought, best thought message, right? So to me, this signifies that you, my Taurus lovers, might be a bit frustrated with something in your life. So either you're feeling stuck in a rut or you're trying to embark on a new journey and it hasn't gone off quite as quickly or as smoothly as you as you would have liked. So this is saying you need to take a step back, like chill out, and sometimes just approaching things from a new angle is the best course of action, right? So like Taurus babes, y'all tend to be a little stubborn from time to time. So perhaps that diligence is actually not serving your highest good right now. Consider what it would be like for you to take a pause, Set aside whatever preconceived ideas and notions you're bringing to the table and really just like open yourself up to a new understanding of the situation. Again, like going into this with beginner's eyes, right? So catnip is also like a great herb for settling your emotional turmoil. So perhaps you can like brew yourself a nice cup of catnip tea while you pause and recenter and if you're feeling up for it, you could invite catnip to fill you with awe and wonder that very intense, like the beginner, just that like, ugh, that you have when you're new and fresh to something as you like prepare to re-engage with whatever it is that's challenging you. So that is my message for you guys. Like literally everything in this world can be a teacher and whatever this like block is, this roadblock that you've hit, whether it's new or just something that you're kind of hitting over and over again and can't get through, take a step back, take a deep breath, drink a cup of tea, and then try to look at it through new eyes. That new perspective, I think, is really going to be helpful for you guys with whatever the situation is that you're dealing with. Advice we could all take, I think, at Truly. times. Yeah, it is true. Sometimes you do just have to like, Take a deep breath and step back and look at things from a new angle. And again, like catnip is such a good 
herb and plant to work with in that regard anyway, because it does help sort of like settle that emotional turmoil because like we've all been frustrated before, right? Like you are not thinking you're clearest when you're getting fucking annoyed with something. So take a, take a beat, do some catnip tea or lemon balm Ooh. if you don't have catnip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, so we, we said lemon balm. I guess I'll just say sleep sachet so you can have another drink. Uh, right. I mean, I thought about putting tarragon in a sleep sachet, but I didn't <laughs> um, because I can't say to put everything in one. But, you know, I mean, at this at this point, uh, you know, if you're following along at home, you've you've got a sleep sachet the size of a body pillow uh, that's just got that's just got everything in it. Uh, I mean, what else do you need magically other than a massive fucking sleep sachet? (laughs) Is there other magic? Um, Anyway, Uh, well, guys, we have a new podcast logo, so we would love to hear your thoughts. This is from a little photo shoot Nick and I did back in April when he was here, Um, but we wanted to give it a little refresh. And so if you guys like it, let us know if you hate us. I mean, tell us gently because I worked on this and Nick and I did some back and forth. be kind. We are DIY, but I'm really proud of it. I think it looks awesome. And this is our 51st episode. So we're coming up on that year mark. That's, that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) It's Um, so wild. It's so wild. I I think, I think everyone should send us a a toast for one year. uh, As soon as you hear this. And also, Remember to let us know about your favorite dragons yes. out in the world. Um, and where where can they do that? They can do that by reaching out to us through email, which is wandsandfrondspod at gmail.com. Or if you're with the cool kids on the Instagrams, you can reach out to us through direct message at wandsandfrondspod. Uh, like us, follow us, comment on our stuff. Nick and I are both super active on Instagram. So if you guys have any questions, ideas, thoughts that you want to send us drunkenly at 3 a.m., I mean, we are here for all of it. We love hearing from you guys. I really do, because I also am drunk at 3 a.m. sometimes, and then <laughs> all the better. I like the way you said, I really do. Like, you're trying to fight me for which one of us loves it more. It's like, no, I love them more, I love love them more. (laughs) Um, But yeah, guys. Don't worry. Don't worry, kids. We're not getting a divorce. No, y'all are stuck with us for many, many years to come. Um, But given that we're coming up on a year and there's some exciting stuff coming around the bend, it would be super helpful if you guys would rate, review, subscribe. Um, If you're listening on one of the many apps that doesn't let you rate and review, downloading the episode is a huge help. Share it with your friends, subscribe your Lyft driver to Wands and Fronts pod while you're in the car, Um, pitch us at your local apothecaries or metaphysical shops. I definitely uh, pitched the podcast to a woman who works at Wild Terra. So if she's listening, hey, girl, hey, nice to meet you. Um, yeah, so we love you guys. To all of these, uh, these dragon bitches, what do we say, Nicholas? Blessed be, dragon bitches. Blessed be, you fiery dragon bitches. Goodbye. Bye now.
I'm very tired today. Um, Ooh, same, honey. Man, look at those bags under my eyes. I would have to check that luggage. <laughs> it's rough. 